Hello, fellow Workplace Evolution podcast listeners. Now, I'm not going to lie, we are learning as we go this end. Uh, The first podcast is a little bit longer than expected, but hang in there. There's some great content around Tony's time at Cadbury's, some amazing points on sales in the home shopping channels. Parts that really stood out for me were around failed product launches, the need to take risks in marketing, when being creative, the importance of planning and preparation when selling your product, and of course the Cadbury's Gorilla advert. How on earth did that get through? Uh, and also some insights into the craft takeover of Cadbury's, the impact on the culture there. And then last but by no means least, the insight on storytelling in sales on home shopping channels and what makes a great presenter. So gone are the days of the fake tan, I think. Anyway, enjoy the podcast. We welcome your feedback. Have a look at the podcast notes if you want to get in touch. And if you enjoyed it, please give us a like and give us a share. Okay, over to episode one. Okay, welcome to the Workplace Evolution podcast, episode one. Unbelievable, it's actually happening. Uh, and today we have a very special guest, Tony Camp, the legend, <laughs> the man, the myth, uh, sales and marketing guru. Tony, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for that introduction. I feel honoured I'm actually meeting myself under such circumstances. <laughs> Tony, I, I have a million and one questions for you. Um, you know, your career has spanned many decades, centuries. Um, we're not going to go back too far. Um, but you have seen the workplace evolve over time. That's what the podcast is all about. And I thought a good place to start would be, how have you seen the retail sector evolve during your career? Uh, going back to the 80s when I, when I first entered into uh, the workplace, um, those days you had 40,000, 50,000 independent retailers. You had probably 15 to 20 multiple retailers. Um, retailers like Hinton's, like Lipton's, Gateway, uh, which have all disappeared now. So ask you one of your questions, what's happening? You're seeing a consolidation really now. There's less than 10,000 independent retailers now in the country. Um, you've probably got four or five retailers now that decide for 80% of us what we eat, what we drink every day. Lots of Tesco's, Asda's and Sainsbury's. And I see consolidation continuing. Obviously, we saw last year the failure of Asda and Sainsbury's to get together, but that's going to happen at some point. So fundamentally speaking, there will be less choice mm. to a certain extent in terms of the retailers you can go and talk to physically. Mm. However, the other half is becoming more and more complex because back in those days, it was very simple. You went to the high street, you bought your goods, you walked back. And as a marketeer, it was dead simple. Um, All I needed to do was buy advertising around Coronation Street and that Mm -hmm. would deliver 60% of the UK as an audience to me. These days, it's completely changed. 
So media has fractured beyond belief. The choice that people now have in terms of consuming data, consuming uh, programming, has gone beyond belief now in terms of what is out there. I mean, back in my day, we had three channels. Mm. Um, you know, BBC Two came in, I remember it coming in. These days, you've got over four or five hundred channels to actually uh, explore as a, as a viewer, plus what's on your iPad, plus what's on your phone. Mm. So fundamentally speaking, it's become a lot more difficult in certain ways for a marketeer now to actually go out there and buy a media schedule. Mm. However, it's become a lot more targeted. Mm. So what is easier is you can now actually go to the right channels, to the right uh, websites to expand your brand to a much more rifle shot targeted audience mm. than you had before. You've mentioned to me in the past that you've had some difficult messages to have to digest on various products and, and services. Tell me more about that. You know, how, how does a company get through that when they, they, they have a product or, or a service and, and the feedback is just absolutely terrible? You know, how do you get past that? I mean, the, the good news is that's happened very rarely because, you know, what I would say is a lot of marketing and, and, and successful marketing is about doing your desk research first and getting your desk research right actually making sure that there is a market out there for your product, that there are users out there who could be interested in your product, and your product actually has got the right attributes to actually take advantage of that particular gap that you've managed to identify via your desk research. So normally speaking, if you've done your desk research right, the, the whole research bit is about honing it up, uh, making it sharper, making it uh, capable of being more successful. But yes, there have been occasions where I've said that, and it's mainly been around pricing, actually, less so about product construction, because as part of a product launch, you always want to make sure there's enough profit in it, and therefore you're trying to hike the price up as much as possible in order to make sure the margin is there to make sure you can get your product launched. Um, so fundamentally speaking, sometimes I've found the asking price that you're putting out there is being challenged quite hard by the uh, the research groups. And that's very good, actually, because that then teaches you about the economics of your product and what you can actually charge for it at the end of the day. Um, and I've seen so many good products go out there at ridiculous prices and unfortunately fail. Such as? Um, <laughs> do you really want me to get like this? No, I, I, all I can say is I, I've seen a number of of, I mean, for instance, Cadbury launched a product which was uh, sort of a high-end um, male product uh, called Tribute, actually. Tribute? Uh, yes, have you heard of it? Uh, I'm afraid not. No, I didn't you didn't, quite did <laughs> But that was, that was Cadbury's trying to break out of the sort of mid-range price and moved more to all sort of the higher-end Belgian chocolate yeah. uh, kind of pricing. And it didn't work because the brand could not carry off a premium price. Yeah. You know, what What do you think actually makes the the difference? You know, what are the key things that uh, contribute to a successful product launch? I think for me, uh, whoever is involved in a product launch has to have a three sixty degree understanding of what that product can do, not only for the consumer, but for the retailer and also for the business. 
because I've seen many ideas actually launched over the years who forget about uh, the margin and profitability that's required for a product to be successful and sustain that success over many years. Because a lot of marketeers will come up with a great tasting product, but if it's got no margin, it can't actually sustain the cost of a launch and the cost of promoting and the cost of advertising. So that has to be built into any thinking before you even start. The second thing is actually understanding who you're gonna be talking to, who you're targeting. The amount of products I see actually who don't actually have any ideas to what sort of audience they should be attracting. It's therefore very difficult for them to successfully penetrate a marketplace. So you really need to understand who you're actually targeting, what sort of needs are they actually after, and does that product fulfill those needs? And then finally, it's about understanding how you're gonna get it to market. So are you gonna launch that via website? Or are you going to go via a retailer? If you're going via the retailer, then there's costs involved. Everything from listing fees through to the margins that those particular retailers require, through to promotions that you will have to actually put in place in order to keep your product on the shelf. Because something that once said to me by a Tesco buyer was, Tony, our shelves are not elastic. So <laughs> why would I want to actually put your product on my shelf? And what products are you going to take off? So really coming back to my point is, I think anybody who's involved in marketing these days has to have a 360 degree understanding of who are they going to try and actually target, what profitability can they drive within their company, and then finally, how are they going to actually promote and sustain and convince uh, a retailer to actually launch their product. So on the topic of targeting, uh, we've had a few questions come through from uh, various different list listeners. One from Anna Hopkins, who's uh, come with a real challenge, actually. She's say, saying, Cadbury's isn't considered real chocolate abroad. Is this true? And is there much demand for sales other than from expats? Surely they can't compete against the likes of Swiss and Belgian chocolate. So you had a bit of, bit of time at, at, at Cadbury's. You know, what, what's your thoughts on this? Well, interesting. Um, yeah, I was, I was there for over 20 years. Um, we actually had a phrase for Cadbury's chocolate, we used to call it ironing chocolate. Um, and people used to buy it um, and literally iron their clothes while watching Coronation Street and eating Cadbury's chocolate. <laughs> uh, and that was just to remind us exactly that point. At the end of the day, Cadbury's is a mid-range chocolate. Um, and I won't go into the details of ingredients and how much milk is put in, essentially, but yeah, you do not go up against Lint, you do not go up against Cart Door. Um, what you do is find the markets where people actually are looking for a mid-range priced chocolate, uh, where your taste, uh, your recipe is acceptable. And interestingly enough, cabbages were never successful in Western Europe. Um, Eastern Europe is where they went fishing. Why? Because in Western Europe, the brands were already well established. Uh, so the likes of Cart Door, the likes of Lint, um, the, the high range oat gam uh, Belgian chocolates were already there and indeed all we did was sell to expats in Western Europe. Eastern Europe when it opened up in the 80s and 90s after Glasnost they didn't really have strong brands so Cadbury actually established manufacturing bases in the likes of Poland and Russia 
and actually developed the population towards the taste of Cadbury's. Fantastic. Ironing chocolate is a phrase you didn't think you'd hear. Now, I've got a question here from Carl Equi. Uh, why the hell did they think a drum playing gorilla at Cadbury's would actually sell chocolate? He would have loved to have been in the pitching session. Picture this close up of gorilla in the air tonight starts to play by the, <laughs> by the legend <laughs> Phil Collins. Uh, do you know anything about this, uh, the story behind it? Well, yeah, I mean, essentially, and I've been involved in these pitching sessions, um, essentially, uh, Cadbury had a problem back in the 80s and 90s. I, I alluded to the fact it used to be called ironing shop, but they did a lot of work on the personality of the brand and found, in fact, it was seen as a friendly bank manager. Um, and demographically, they were losing uh, young consumers, and unfortunately, their, their, their user base was aging. So fundamentally speaking, if you actually projected that forward, the brand was actually going to be losing users, as unfortunately, its older consumers died out, literally. Yeah. So they had to find a way very quickly of arresting that feeling that this was just an old tired brand that was a bit of a friendly bank manager and therefore creatively they had to take a leap to say okay then how do we actually reposition this brand in quite a shocking way but not too shocking shocking that put people off mm. the fundamental dna of the brand is all about happiness and enjoying yourself so what they did therefore was find music find images found uh, creative ideas which were enjoyable to watch but change that perception away from being a bank manager to being uh, up-to-date entertaining and enjoyable and those really are the key words that drive Cadbury's today mm -hmm. so uh, we've got a question from Simon Thomas asking you uh, what, what success factors behind big brand marketing could he apply as um, practical learning points for small businesses like, a, like his own. Okay, I mean, obviously there, there are two elements to that. One is is basically uh, marketing, which is marketing towards consumers, and the other one is, is, is marketing obviously towards businesses. So B2C or business consumer marketing is very much what Cadbury was into. And what's interesting is yet there's a sort of a fallacy here that people think that marketing big brands is dead easy because all you do is chuck loads of money mm. against it. But these big businesses have very strict profit contract, profit criteria. Mm. And what they're looking for is payback, payback in less than two years. So fundamentally speaking, it's exactly the same discipline as if you're running a small brand or a small business. And the fundamentals are very, very simple. Product brand profitability has to be large enough to sustain it through its life cycle. When you launch a product, make sure there's enough money in it for you. It sounds obvious. Um, but the amount of times I've seen brands launch with very slim margins that they cannot actually sustain and they disappear. The thing I would say is, is actually know your audience. I've said this before, but be very much rifle shot as to who you're actually targeting. So are you going to go for 16 to 24 year olds or are you looking to talk to women over 50? Each of those groups have very different requirements, different needs, different mentalities. And the language you use for your brand is very different. How you position your brand 
towards a 16 year old versus a 50 year old is very different. What do you think it, it is that uh, contributes to some of the resistance to you know that proactive activity that that, that targeted activity you know that there's that extra effort to, to put in up front to find out about your customers world find about about their needs and wants but why is it that sometimes um, there might be resistant to that effort um, well I think I think you've already sort of alluded to it it's an effort uh, planning um, is such a boring word isn't it but mm. actually planning is essential in terms of giving you the confidence and also uh, the map towards success um, so going out there speaking to people I've, I've actually run research groups uh, with housewives with teenagers sitting there and listening to them pull your brand apart pull apart your product um, mm. and sometimes it's painful uh, yeah. and it takes time but yeah. actually getting that constructive criticism back builds for a better brand and builds a better product and obviously therefore builds for more success so would you say that actually sometimes things like the focus groups the surveys that the questions those those tools sometimes tell you things that you don't want to hear and that can be hard. It can be hard to confront some of that. I have seen that. I mean, I, <laughs> I've actually been involved in it myself. I think somebody said once there's statistics, more statistics than damn lines or something. Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes you look at the research and you don't like what it's telling you. Right. But you have to be honest enough to accept that. Now, you have to get it drastically wrong to, to sort of completely fail in any research you're doing mm. with a product. Because... You know, you've got a gut feel for this product. You've got a gut feel already. You've talked to people. You've, you've read things. You've looked on the box. You've seen things out there. And you sort of think, yeah, I've got a gut feel that this is going to work. And usually I find intuition is 60 to 70% of a winning formula. Mm -hmm. The 30% then is actually going out there and doing a bit more planning work. Just maybe sitting down with five or six friendly, I say friendly, but honest housewives or friends of people that you know just to get them to give uh, more honest and more I suppose critical feedback just to make sure your idea is completely honed is probably a good idea uh, and as I understand it we, we, we've spoken about your career before um, is it right you had to actually experience each and every element each and every department within Cadbury's to to get a, a feeling for for the product, the service, and the environment? Yeah, I mean, um, back in the 80s, the, the planning horizons were a lot longer than today. And so, fundamentally speaking, you really did go into Cadbury's as part of an apprenticeship. So, I spent uh, two years in the factories, basically learning the craft of how to mix chocolate, toffee, cream, worked on the production lines, um, and then basically uh, took over production lines and ran them myself before going then into sales and marketing. And the whole idea was you actually understood there for the product construction. You understood the recipes. And that gave you a lot better knowledge on how to actually develop products going forwards. The only thing it did teach you was humility. Um, you know, dealing with 80 Scouse women on a production line in, in Liverpool at the age of 25 uh, gave you an understanding that... Um, you might have a degree, mate, but at the end of the day, you've got to convince people from all walks of life to actually go with your sales pitch. 
Mm. Uh, so fundamentally speaking, it was it was a, a really good grounding in terms of making me hopefully a better manager in the future. Mm. So tell me a bit more about the the culture at Cadbury's and how you you know looking back as well when when Kraft came came in and and took over, how you think it might have changed uh, since you were there. Um, well, two things I would say. One is I knew Cadbury's very well. I mean, you'd be sitting in the canteen and Seradia and Cadbury would come and sit next to you and ask you how your day's going. Uh, wow. Fundamentally, it was an incredibly amazing family company. And the Cadbury's were very much part of the ethos. It was, it was you know, it was a, a family company, but obviously a multi-million pound international company at the same time. Mm. But it had that feeling. Um, I have to say I wasn't there when Kraft took over, but I do know of how things did change. And clearly it became a lot more corporate. Um, the, the American way of doing things were very much part of the planning processes going forwards. Mm. And I saw changes really in terms of product construction, uh, the introduction of American ingredients mm -hmm. into Cadbury's was something which I hold my hand up in horror, but mainly because I'm obviously a traditional Cadbury person. I'm sure they're doing very well. Yeah. Do you think that, that actually the, the, the takeover of Kraft will impact the, the brand, the, the image over time, or do you think the, the Cadbury's brand will just stay strong uh, for a good um, deal of time yet? I, I think that's an interesting question. I, mean, I, I, I can't see Cadbury's brand disappearing overnight. I mean, you know, one, one of the physical things you'll always notice, you go into any um, convenience store, any retailer, you'll always see Cadbury's. So Cadbury's has got a strong physical presence within the market and still has so. Um, I think over time it has changed. I, I've seen the product change in terms of its recipes, in terms of the ingredients put into it. But I see where they're going and I see what they're trying to do, obviously, is attract younger uh, demographics mm -hmm. into the brand. Uh, and they're not talking for the likes of me anymore. They're trying to talk to uh, people who are obviously in their sort of 16, 17, 18, their teens, so to speak. Yeah. And you know what? Uh, I get that. I think that's an interesting strategy. And I think that's probably one way of making sure the brand continues. So Cadbury's continues to adapt, yes. uh, survive and thrive. Um, on to the other sector that, that you've worked in, uh, which is the home shopping um, sector, would you call it? Yes, shopping TV, TV shopping. Yeah, TV, yeah. Sh TV shopping. Um, for some reason, whenever you bring, bring that up in conversation, it, it, it brings like a wry smile. Uh, I'm not sh quite sure why, maybe you could, you could tell me, but I'm interested in, in how do you go about selling a, a, a product um, that might not be that interesting or quite an unusual product. You see a lot of odd things uh, being sure. put forward on the, on these on these channels, um, and amazingly, this stuff sells. You know, so some of these are more unusual products. You know, how how do the the presenters actually pitch some of these un, unusual products? Do they have a method? Do they have a model? Uh, what's your thoughts? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I must admit that having spent uh, 30 years in FMCG marketing, 
working with Cadbury's and Burton's Biscuits to find myself suddenly in TV shopping was quite a shock. Um, I did it mainly because I wanted a new challenge and I was fascinated by the sales model that TV shopping actually is. Mm. And fundamentally speaking, you're right. I mean, it's quite interesting when I said to people, uh, friends, I've gone into TV shopping, the first thing they do is smile. Mm. Uh, it just brings that smile to your face. I think a lot of people sort of think of, um, I can't remember, was it Bridget Jones where they had a TV shopping guy had a permatan. Um, it's, <laughs> it, it's that kind of, of, of image. But I'll tell you what, it's amazing business. The business is now turning over something like two billion pounds in the UK alone. Mm -hmm. um, and it is a fascinating way of selling a, a product. And what's interesting now, you've got the likes of Karsha, Bosch, Tefal, all coming into TV shopping. Why? Because it's a completely incremental sales channel for brands. So they see it as um, a new profit stream for them and a new way of advertising their brands at the same time. Now, fundamentally, you asked me the question about uh, the sales pitch. These sales presenters that are on there um, have to be almost working in four dimensions because not only do they have to remember the script, um, they also have to listen to the producer telling them at the same time uh, what's going on in terms of the sales numbers. Um, every second, every minute in TV shopping is about producing numbers. So you'll see when you're in a, in a TV shopping company in the, in the gallery where the director and the producer is, you'll see the numbers coming in and the producer and the directors will be telling the sales presenters, oh, you've just said that. We've seen, a, we've seen an increase in sales. Can you say that again? So it is, from a, from a, from a supplier point of view, an incredibly quick, uh, flexible, instant way of seeing how your product sell. Now, the key thing you asked me about is what's the success formula? Well, in TV shopping, there has to be a story. There has to be a story. So um, a story about where this product comes from or how it was invented. Um, this is all part of the entertainment. But also in there, there has to be obviously some very good reasons to buy this product. You've basically got an hour to pitch. And within 10 to 15 minutes, you know whether the product is going to succeed or fail. Mm. And the majority of products fail because they don't actually have enough compelling arguments. Why would you buy this now? Why would you buy it today? Why would you buy at this price? And basically, why would you buy from Ideal World? So there always has to be a, uh, a need to have already instant sales messages out there that make people want to buy and pick up the phone now or go online now and buy the product. Yeah. There's this urgency, isn't there, that, yeah. that kind of that, that comes with the, the shopping channel network. But also, uh, I love this idea of, of, of it being an agile uh, way of, of, of selling as well. You know, say, say that again, or can you, can you, can you just push on, on this particular Correct. product? Because it's, it's, it's live, it's happening, which is, um, which is fascinating. Um, also, when you look at the, the, the shopping channels, it almost feels like they are selling the urgency uh, you know, there's only so many left or there's only so much time left. Yeah. Um, you can see possibly, I know there's a model, the six weapons of influence, mm -hmm. uh, which is about um, social proof. You know, look at all the people that are buying it yeah. or yeah. Uh, figures of authority. 
uh, you know, look, look, you know, key famous celebrities that yeah. are wearing this 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 product. You know, are, are they using techniques like that? You know, are these are these um, presenters skilled, crafted salesmen, or, or are they just kind of winging it there live on on the TV? Um, I think that's a combination uh, of uh, professionalism and intuition here. The majority of these people, by the way, come from the likes of the BBC uh, or ITV or, or main shopping channels, main uh, terrestrial channels. So they already know how to act in front of a camera. They already know how to inculcate and build trust with a viewer. You know, the amount of viewers that we had in TV shopping who associated with, wrote to and were fans of the sales presenters, it was a very interesting symbiotic relationship between the presenter and the viewer. And they did have fan bases, and they do have fan bases. And the sales presenter who on the TV shopping channel has to be trusted. So that's a key fundamental. Now within that, actually, there are sales techniques, so calls to action, CTAs as we call them, which is why buy it now at this price. You know, the stock is decreasing. Those kind of techniques are employed. But fundamentally speaking, you have to have a character out there on the screen who can build the trust, who's got the empathy, who is entertaining and at the same time trustworthy and fascinating. I, I've actually seen TV uh, shopping shows where the presenter's gone off on holiday and we've got another one in and the sales aren't as good. Mm. So it is very much uh, a relationship between the sales presenter on the TV show and the viewer. And I assume as well with, with the presenter, you know, with, with social media, you have followers on Twitter and sure. various Instagram and various other uh, mediums, other social media products are available. Um, you know, that comes with, that comes as a whole package, right? So actually when you're recruiting people onto these channels, this is something that employees need to start start looking yeah, at. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, obviously, at the end of the day, I'm I'm actually a fan of TV shopping, uh, um, mainly from as a ex marketeer because what you've got here is um, a way of expanding your brand uh, and your advertising and selling at the same time. Uh, I used to get a question actually, you know, I I can go on to uh, terrestrial and, and buy advertising and I'll get 2 million viewers. Um, you know, TV shopping, how many viewers you are getting? And I say, well, probably about 200,000, 300,000. But I said to them at the same time, how many shoppers are you getting when you advertise around Coronation Street? How many times do people actually go out and make a cup of tea or go and do something else while the advert's on? Or if it's on catch-up, fast-forward it. The people who are actually watching TV shopping, the viewers are actually shoppers. They want to watch, they want to buy. And therefore the conversion rates on advertising uh, through TV shopping are a lot higher than going through terrestrial channel. Okay, thank you, Tony. Um, that's been absolutely fascinating to, to go through in a very short space of time. The different sectors that you've, you've worked in, different companies um, and all the advice that you've given is incredibly valuable. Um, thank you very much, Tony Camp. Pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Cheers.